Yes, the truth of it all, right? Homes have been destroyed, families forced to evacuate in the middle of the wildfires burning in our province here in British Columbia. And of course, when we say families are forced to evacuate, forced to run out of their homes, families with pets are forced to run, right? So, and animals also struggle during this kind of season because you as a pet owner, as a, as a dog mom, a dog dad, you know, you're struggling to get yourself somewhere, shelter and make sure that you're safe. And you have to also think about your baby. You have to think about your pets. So right now we're speaking with, we'll be joined by Victoria Shroff. Victoria is an animal law lawyer at shroffanimallaw.com. Hello, Victoria. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. All right, so Victoria, let's um, uh, let's quickly talk about this. Right, we're yeah. in the middle of the wildfire burning in British Columbia. We know that um, animals are struggling, pet owners are struggling, and it's it's a difficult time, I guess. Absolutely, and um, so you know we we've, we've got all sorts of difficulties with you know humans evacuating. But there's also the, the, you know, the family member who has four legs that we need to consider. So we're talking about cats and dogs, but we're also talking about horses and other, um, you know, especially in rural areas, you'll have um, more um, pets that are, you know, for example, you might have in Vancouver, you might have one dog. It's not uncommon to have two or three dogs in um, more rural areas. And there are also considerations for wild animals and farmed animals um, that they also have to have their needs met um, during animal um, rescues. So, Victoria, if one is, I'm, I'm a dog lover, my mom at any point in time, right? Like you mm-hmm. mentioned, she has, you would always have about five to six dogs. I mean, she loves dogs, takes care of them. So if one is in a situation like this, you have to evacuate. There's burning fire, you're given a time to leave. How does one deal with this? Well, right, I think the, the, the most important advice that I can give anybody today is to be prepared. If you are prepared and you have a plan for how to handle things, and this is where planning ahead really helps. Because you have to know where you're going to evaluate, you're going to sorry evacuate with your animals. And when you plan ahead, there aren't as many surprises. It's already a really stressful situation. So I suggest that people, for example, for their companion animals, should have an emergency disaster kit ready, just like you have for your own for the humans in your house. Make sure you have some for your pets. And um, you know that's it's so important to have enough food in there and you'd have some water, and you have a place for your animal to be feeling safe. So if you have a cat, um, a nice cozy box where they can kind of feel they can almost hide a little bit, and you should have your vaccination and medical records, just veterinary contact information. Um, this, is, this is where the importance of having um, your animal microchipped is so critical, because if your animal does get lost and they're taken to a shelter, then they can be matched back up with you. Um, so, so there are lots of different things that people should do. They should have a pet disaster preparedness kit. They should have um, all of these things done in advance as much as possible. 
So, Victoria, let's talk about something that happens very often around this time of the year when the weather is so hot, you know, dog, pet owners, dog owners, cat owners, leaving their pets in their car in a very yeah. hot weather. Oh, that's terrible. Yes. So Absolutely there terrible. is a Toronto lady right now who's facing charges after she allegedly locked her dog in a hot car for hours before the dog was rescued. Yes, yes. And we've, we've actually had, we've had some cases that have gone forward and um, a person was prosecuted um, in BC, I think it was in 2015, for um, hot, having, um, you know, dogs in a hot car. And apparently it can take under 10 minutes and the dog can die in temperatures of 27 degrees and higher. Like we've had, you know, we've, this is extraordinary, um, this weather that we're having. The, you know, it's not it's just extreme, the normal. It's extreme, right? Yes, it, it is. is. It is. It's, it's absolutely extreme. So um, there's no way people should be leaving their animals in cars at all. I don't even, I don't even think it should be done for a minute. You really should not be doing it. Um, There's a funny thing that I do, Victoria, you know, when I'm walking, when I'm taking my walk or going on those hot afternoons, I'm just kind of peeping, peeking into cars, you know, not like, you know, it's just, I'm just doing it unconsciously to be sure no one is leaving their pets because you've been outside. It's so hot. Now imagine having to lock your pet in a vehicle. Yep. Yeah. No, absolutely not. It, It shouldn't, it shouldn't be done. Um, and I mean, it's, um, it's, you know, people think, oh, I've just cracked a window. It's good enough. No, no, it's usually not enough. And, um, it just, it just takes moments and depending on the size of the dog and the different medical conditions that the dog may have, um, you know, if the dog has anxiety on top of the heat, it's a terrible, it's a terrible recipe for disaster. So I think people need to be really, really careful with how they keep their animals in the heat. And, and part of it is, is, you know, I mean, wildfires are one extreme, but then there's just the everyday heat that we've been having here in the lower mainland as well. And then there's smoke. Um, so, so people need to be really, really mindful of their animals and also um, to be mindful of wild animals that are also affected um, by all of this. And by, to, by the wildfire, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And so people should really, um, you know, do their do their due diligence with their pets before by having a um, a fire uh, safety plan and any kind of disaster um, safety plan for your pets um, before something happens as much as you can. I know for some people they've been caught, uh, you know, you know, by surprise by this, but it's they can still do whatever they can to be careful. Um, I was told. Um, by a firefighter that if you do leave your pet um, and you have to evacuate, that maybe you should consider leaving your pet indoors. Um, don't leave them outside or chained or anything like that. So there are specific tips that people can find. I would recommend people going to the um, BCFPCA website. They've got actually a very specific uh, set of criteria for how to help animals during an emergency. And they've got an important emergency checklist for food, water, the treats that and toys and things that you might want to consider putting into your kit. So we have learned about some of the things you need to do in case of an evacuation. So let's talk about in the few minutes that we have left, about a minute there about how can people help in terms of donation, you know, food bank, you know, something, how can people help animals that are struggling at this time? Yes. Well, I think uh, many food banks are also taking um, food for animals. So that would be really, really helpful. 
I suggest people could reach out to their uh, local Humane Society or the BCFPCA and say that they'd like to help sponsor um, an animal. Uh, they can do that online. They can do it by phone. And um, they can offer whatever um, financial assistance they could offer. And in some cases, there may be fostering opportunities for um, taking um, an animal into your home for a few days. Um, so all of these things will be arranged through um, animal um, services. Okay. Um, where So you have the emergency services coordinating with animal services to try and make everybody safe in these stressful, extreme times. Sure, we all need that. Animal law lawyer, Victoria Shroff, thank you so much for spending time with us this afternoon. Thanks very much. So earlier today, the World Health Organization said maybe countries around the world are beginning to open up too early. Wow. Okay, that for me is interesting, is an interesting piece, you know, because this is like... Um, a year and um, three, four, five months into the pandemic right now. Well, so they're saying it might not be the best thing to do right now, that they should take it slowly here in British Columbia, starting May, uh, so, sorry, starting July 1st, right? It's no longer mandatory for you to put on a mask in indoor spaces if you haven't fully vaccinated. So you must have gotten your two jabs, two shots for you not to do that. And then, you know, people can now go out, you can go into the restaurant, you know, still with those little restrictions in there. But I think we're gradually beginning to return to a form of normal, not what it was pre-pandemic. And we were being joined by one of the best in the business. He's um, he's always happy to answer your questions. He breaks it down in a very easy way to understand. Joining me is Jason Tetro, the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Hi, Jason. Hello. How are you? Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Oh, it's a pleasure to be joining you. Okay, so Jason, I read this news. I, I read the story and I was just wondering... Are we opening up too early? Well, if you'd asked me about a month and a half ago, I probably would have said, no, we're right on track. And now, thanks to a particular variant we all know as Delta, we've now realized that, well, maybe we might be opening a little too soon for what we call elimination. And that's the big thing you have to realize here. We have two outcomes that we can have. One is we get rid of it like we do measles, so we never hear about it. The other is that we have cold, flu, and COVID seasons every year. If we want to eliminate it like we do with measles and and Ebola, if you actually um, want to go that far, then you have to wait till 75% of the population has had two doses before you open up. If, however, you're comfortable with the idea that people are going to get sick, they may have some symptoms, but they're not going to end up in hospitals because the vaccines are working, then we're in a good position. So in that case, with all the variants that we're seeing now, the Delta variant, Mm -hmm. and yesterday the news about the Lambda. Yeah, Lambda is like one of those really interesting ones from my perspective as a researcher because it has a number of different types of mutations that you don't really see unless you happen to be in South America. And why that is really interesting is because in South America, they decided not, for the most part, not to go with the Pfizer or Moderna or AstraZeneca. 
Instead, they went with vaccines like the Sputnik or the Sinopharm or the CanSino. And the reason that is interesting is because the ones that we have here in Canada, the Pfizer, the Moderna, the AstraZeneca, has what is known as a pre-fusion spike protein. In other words, it looks like the spike protein on the virus, not in your cells. The ones that are in Argentina and Peru and other countries that are affected by the Lambda, um, well, the, the, the actual vaccine looks like the, the basically the protein that's in your cells. And that's what the variants are doing is they're changing the immune response um, so that you can't recognize that. So when you see this Lambda coming out, I go, okay, well, that's fair. There are definitely troubles. But since we have been vaccinated with this pre-fusion protein, I don't think it's going to cause any problems up here. Okay, so you're saying North America has no cause for concern about Lambda, for now at least. As long as you're vaccinated. Because if you look up north into the Yukon, they got an outbreak right now. And it's Gamma that's doing it. And Lambda is related to Gamma. I know we could get all to Greek about this. But anyway, just let me put it <laughs> to this way. Gamma? Mm-hmm. I know. It's all Greek to me, right? Um, but the fact is that what's happening in the Yukon is that this Gamma is causing an outbreak, but it's mainly in people who simply have not yet been vaccinated. So the real trick to make sure that um, Gamma, Alpha, Beta, uh, Lambda, whatever, doesn't get into British Columbia and start causing a mess is just make sure that you've had at least the one dose. And if you want to prevent Delta from causing a massive problem, then you make sure that you get two doses. It's just that simple. So it's because one thing that we are seeing, a trend that we're seeing in in America, in in Canada, in British Columbia is, it's they're saying that most of the people who are hospitalized right now are people who are yet to be vaccinated. Most of the hospitalizations are people in that category. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and we're going to continue to see that. Um, and, and let me just tell you something. We already know all of this. You know why? Mm-hmm. You've heard of measles, right? right. Like we've eliminated measles. But have you ever heard of measles coming to British Columbia? Not really. Of course you have. Well, yes, well, you well have. last year, we've yes, had, we had we had something we, like that last year. You're right. Yes, yes. We've had last sure. year pockets mm. over the last pockets, five years. Yep, Where yep. are those pockets happening? In unvaccinated individuals. Hmm. We know that this happens. Everybody understands this. That is why rolling up your sleeve and getting that shot is so important for us to be able to continue moving forward. So, you know, for those who are not, you know, the people who don't believe in vaccines, the anti-vaxxers, the anti-science people, Mm -hmm. the way forward is just to get vaccinated. That's the way you can protect yourself. At least give yourself that layer of, you know, assurance and protection. Actually, it's a double layer, believe it or not. And that's the most beautiful thing about vaccines. You've heard about the antibody response, right? That's the one that just comes out and and stops you from getting sick. Well, even if the virus happens to get past that, which is what the Delta is doing, you have a secondary layer. It's called a T-cell response, a cellular response. And it actually is beating the Delta. That's why you're not having hospitalizations. That's why you're not having serious infections. So a vaccine is actually doing double duty for you by giving you two layers of protection so that if the first one doesn't work, The second one's going to come in and make sure that you're going to be okay. Yeah, you'll get some sniffles. Yeah, you might have a little bit of a cough, but you're not going to end up in the hospital. That's how good vaccines are. So one thing that, you know, when we talk about getting access to vaccine, that is a major one. And the question is, you know, it might not be very easy for people 
to get through, you know, bookings and things like that. Mm-hmm. How, what are ways that we can make vaccines and vaccination more accessible to people? Yeah, well, there's two approaches that you can take. One is you bring the vaccine to the masses. In other words, you're able to um, go and do these little drives, uh, little campaigns. Pop, you're going pop. into neighborhoods, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Or what you do is you bring the people to the vaccine. And that's initially what we had to do because of Pfizer. And remember the minus 80 storage yes, temperature. Yes, the storage temperature. But the fact is that... The UK did this where they had everybody coming to the vaccine. Liverpool was a perfect example. And it did okay. It got to about 70% pretty quickly, but it didn't really go higher than that. If you start looking at some other places uh, where they're actually going out to give the vaccine to people, you're finding that, well, it's still getting to about 70%, but it's not really going too much higher than that. So how do we get from that 70% to that 85 to 90% that we really need in order to be absolutely sure we can eliminate that? And I think that's really the, the, the issue that we're dealing with. It's not about the access. It's about the willingness. So I think... You know, we've got a really good situation here in Canada. We've got some wonderful people who have been on it uh, from the very beginning. We know how to make sure people have access to it as long as it's, you know, coming in. But we've got to be absolutely sure that people are also taking it. Welcome back to Jill Bennett Show. My name is Jimmy Ogunshola, and we still have with us Jason Tetro. So, Jason, let's shift Mm -hmm. gear and talk about ticks carrying Lyme disease. Yeah. So uh, we do know about Lyme disease. Now, granted, in British Columbia, it is far less prevalent. So if you were to look at, you know, the northeastern United States, where it happens to be everywhere, you're looking at around 30 cases per 100,000, and about 40% of the ticks are infected. Now, here in in British Columbia, really, it's less than 1% of the ticks have been infected with um, the the, the bacterium that causes Lyme disease. And uh, there's very few cases in British Columbia of uh, people actually being infected. So in that light, it's really more about making sure that what you want to do is be aware of the risk that comes from ticks. And I think if we can do that through what we're talking about here, we can just get people prepared because I do know that people are going to want to go out and actually enjoy some of this summer. Yeah, and that's what we we want to talk about, you know, when you're out, when you're in the outdoors, Mm -hmm. how can you protect yourself? How can you be more aware of your surroundings? And um, yeah, so let's talk about that because people will be getting outdoors. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that you have to realize is that what ticks do isn't jump. I mean, we, we always hear about, you know, ticks have jumped onto my, uh, my pet or jumped onto me. They don't. What they do is they hang off of uh, grasses, very long grasses and that, and they just hang around until you pick them up on your clothing. And then usually what happens is that they can get onto your skin and then they get into uh, essentially your skin to get a blood meal, at which point they then go off and, and start to reproduce. Now, when they have that blood meal, that's when the p- potential passage of the bacteria happens. So, excuse me, what's the one thing that you want to do? You want to prevent your skin from being exposed. And that's why long, loose clothing is always the first recommended thing. Now, I understand when it's 40 degrees outside, the last thing you want to do is be putting on anything that is long-sleeved or long-legged. So there is a secondary option, and that is the use of an insecticide called DEET. Actually, it's not even an insecticide. It's just a repellent. And it's perfectly safe for humans. And at around 25% 
um, then it can actually repel ticks. I know everyone thinks it repels mosquitoes. It does at 10%, 25% repels ticks. So what you really want to be doing at this point is making sure that if you don't have the long clothing, then you get something from your local store that is specific for repelling ticks. It's got 25% DEET. You can look on the side and then you're good to go. Let's talk about, so if unfortunately you're not able, you know, fortunately you're not able to repel them, they get onto your clothing, you pick them up Mm -hmm. and, you know, you get infected. What happens? What do you do? Okay, so the first thing that you want to do is if you happen, first off, to catch it in the act, in other words, there's a tick inside of you, then there's a process by which you can remove the tick. You're using um, essentially tweezers. You're not pushing too hard on the body. You don't want to crush it. And then you try and pull it directly out of your skin. You just Google it. You'll see all sorts of examples. If, however, uh, there's been some kind of bite and you don't see anything until a few days later. And usually what happens is you get a little bit of a red circular uh, mark on your skin. Well, then what you're going to do is you're going to talk to your local medical officer um, or or public health authority and essentially say, okay, look, uh, I may have been bitten by a tick that possibly could have Lyme disease. Now, what's really interesting is that we actually know some of the places in British Columbia that are the highest risk. So we're talking about Squamish, BC, Coquitlam's, uh, Cultus Lake, maybe even Cranbrook. Uh, So if you're from one of those areas, you may be asked to come in and they might be giving you antibiotics. If you happen to be from other areas in the province, what they may do is essentially tell you to, um, you know, watch yourself, keep, uh, you know, an observation of symptoms. And then if anything changes, well, then you go in and and then they'll probably give you the antibiotics. So that's really how it works. This is totally different, by the way, than say, if you were in Nova Scotia and you got bit by a tick, you would be immediately going into the emergency room and they would be giving you antibiotics. That's the reason prevalence is so important when it comes to uh, ticks and Lyme disease. And so let's move over now to what's happening. The the weather is very hot right now, Mm -hmm. but today it's kind of cool, right? It's cooler here in British Columbia. So um, I don't know how, whether at your end right now, but it's cool here. (laughs) But for the last couple of days, past days, it's been hot. And so what are ways that people can still enjoy the weather, enjoy outdoors at this time? while also protecting themselves, staying safe. Yeah, right now, the real key is just simply hydration. Um, You know, shade is obviously going to help. You want to make sure you're in those cooler areas where there's shade, maybe a breeze or something along those lines. But really, it just comes down to water. You just want to make sure that you're continually um, giving yourself water. And if you are going to be out for a while, in especially very, very hot temperatures, then, then what you want to make sure is that you have a little bit of electrolytes in there as well. So I think if you're doing that, then what's going to end up happening is you're continuing to maintain the balance of your body with the heat, and that's definitely going to help. But one thing I really should stress as well is the use of sunscreen so that you're protecting your skin. Um, the burns that are happening under this sun, especially in this latest heat wave, are ridiculous. Uh, you do not want to get burnt, so make sure that you've got that protection on. And, um, you know, just try and make sure you've got clothes that can help to maintain cooling. And again, that's sort of that loose clothing that has its own kind of ventilation if you happen to get into a wind or something like that. 
At this point, I want to say big thank you to you, Jason, for spending some time with us this afternoon to break down. We spoke about COVID vaccination. Are we opening up too early? We also touched on tick season and Lyme disease. And we also spoke about how you can still be out there enjoying the weather and staying safe. Thank you so much for being on the show. Super Awesome Science Show host, Jason Tetro. It was a pleasure. Take care. So this morning, right, the Trudeau government said the new regulations will be forcing federally regulated companies to provide pay equity to men and women. And this will take effect end of August 2021. Those businesses will have, I'm quoting, will have three years to make sure that they are in the line with the rules. The Labor Minister said that it's time to end the pay gap. Wow, that's big news for people who are in the labor market right now. You're working and um, and who else to help us understand this and break it down than um, someone who early this year worked on a powerful piece that did reveal that pay gap goes deeper and beyond just the salary level, that it has something to do with power gap as well. Joining us this afternoon is Robin Doolittle, reporter with Globe and Mail, who recently wrote um, a powerful article with her colleague about pay gap in Canada. Hi, Robin. Hi. Thank you for taking time to join us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So early this year, I read that piece. And um, one of the reasons that I got you on the Charles Ardler show to talk about it, you know, where you investigated pay gap, power gap in Canada and what you discovered. Let's talk. Let's start from there. So uh, the series we've been doing, it's been running throughout the year, but the big piece kind of launched in January. Um, it, it's called The Power Gap, as, as you mentioned, the series. Um, what we did, we, we wanted to look at this this issue of the pay gap. Are men and women um, doing the same job, being paid, you know, the, the same salary, similar salary? Um, long story short, we collected public sector salary records from across the country and then married that data with um, records around the probability of uh, a first name. So 90% of names in Canada are associated with a particular gender at least 95% of the time. And what we did was we just we mapped out the workforce, um, not just of you know core governments, but every public sector entity. So things like universities, um, crown corporations, public corporations. And like I said, we, we initially were focused on salary, but what we found was that while money was an issue. It was really just the lack of women that there were, you know, there might've been, you know, eight male directors and and two female directors. Um, And and that's why we ended up calling it the power gap to reflect um, that this isn't just about money. So this latest announcement is looking at money, which is, which is really interesting and, and, uh, and important. So the latest announcement is more into the money, the difference between mm-hmm. the salaries from, you know, the male and the female, you know, colleagues in a workplace. But yours found out that this is more, it goes deeper. It's rooted in the fact that, is it okay to say that we don't have many women at the table in terms of decision making? Yeah. So the, what I thought was interesting about the announcement today, it, it, I'm not, I'm, I think this is important. I think it is important that governments pass pay equity laws. 
Um, it, we've had legislation in Canada going back to 1951, so something like 70 years ago, was the first pay equity legislation. This isn't new. Um, it, it's been illegal to pay a man and woman doing the same work um, different salaries because of gender for you know many many decades. This latest announcement is looking at, and there's a distinction here, is looking at the specific issue of work of equal value. So women, um, sectors that tend to be uh, female dominated also tend to to make less money. Um, So it's looking at, you know, is a daycare worker, um, uh, which is a female dominated profession, and let's say like a maintenance keeper, which is a, a male dominated profession, are they being compensated appropriately if those jobs are being deemed of equal importance and equal hardship, et cetera. So that's what this is looking at, is, is, is my understanding, um, that organizations are going to have, you know, three years to make sure that men and women doing comparable work are being paid comparably. Um, and again, this is all really important, but what our investigation found is that, you know, the money is not even the biggest issue here. It's just the lack of women. And and you mentioned that at the decision-making tables, and that was true. We found women were lacking at the top, but they were also lacking all all the way to the top, like many levels below the executive level. We did keyword searches on different job titles, like manager, supervisor, director, um, executive director, general manager, vice president, and women were underrepresented quite significantly and and basically by every single way that we sliced and diced the workforce. And it's worth saying, of course, that um, of the women who did break through the top, um, almost all of them were white women. So, um, you know, there was a wage gap that we found between men and women, but the bigger issue was just the complete lack of women on the way uh, in the pipeline. So if you're listening to the show right now and just wondering, what are they talking about, right? Robbing and a colleague of hers did this piece early this year, January precisely. So you can just Google Globe and Mail Power Gap. It's a series that, you know, they ran around that time of different things that they discovered during their research into pay gap and then finally resulting into power gap. So one of the things that you mentioned in your piece is the fact that Nothing has changed, really, in terms of pay gaps since mm-hmm. 2001. I mean, it's not that nothing has Something changed. Something little? Like it is getting better, mm-hmm. but it's just the, the pace is slow. It is. So we looked at, for example, you know, it, as I mentioned, it's a series. So we had an initial kind of story, and then we've been digging into specific sectors since then. So I'll bring up universities, because that was the most recent piece we ran. I think it ran last month. It's, it's hard to keep track of time in covid but um, we found that, you know, at, at universities, we looked at um, the, uh, the, the breakdown of men and women at, at different salary levels. Um, so we broke up the workforce into 10 different salary bands and then also in different job titles. And what we found is at the very top of organizations, there's been almost no movement since 2009. So, you know, in the last decade, it, it's been pretty much status quo. And that really in the last 15 years has been very little movement. Um, and so, it's, you know, things are getting better, but it's like, you know, maybe like a percentage point, like one moving up. And, and what was interesting we found is actually in some cases the wage gap is actually 
increasing. Um, and we've found this in, in, in law, um, law firms as well. And uh, when we look at specific types of, of job titles, so we look at equity partners. And the reason is that the, the workforces are trying to diversify their equity partners, which is obviously a, a laudable um, goal. Um, but when you're putting in a bunch of women and people of color, they're, they're just, just making these ranks, they're then dragging the average down because they're at the lowest earning echelons of that, of that particular silo because they haven't you know, had time to climb it. So um, it, it is, uh, it, there has been progress, but it is very slow. And I think the thing that we're trying to do is that I think we, we've kind of taken our eye off the ball when it comes to these issues. Um, and by just focusing on money, we're missing the, the broader the broader point. Yeah, welcome back. And we are still with Robin Doolittle of the Globe and Mail um, talking about today's announcement um, on new restrictions on pay gap in Canada. And for me, I'm just quite curious about some details of today's announcement, which includes that, well, it's beginning end of August this year, right, Robin? And that, um, you know, after three years that the government will be able to um, audit your company. So, and companies, small companies could pay as much as $30,000 in larger companies or bigger corporations could be fined up to $50,000 if you're found to be in. So what do we say about this, Robbie? So again, I guess I'll come back to this issue of, I think this is really valuable, obviously, that, you know, whenever governments focus on on this issue. Um, but the this is, again, this is looking at work of equal value. Is it is is um, is work that is female dominated being compensated um, comparably to work that is male dominated of equal value? Um, and I think a lot of people, when they think of pay equity issues, they they think of you know is is a man and a woman um, with similar experience, um, education. Uh, expertise doing the exact same job being paid differently. So that isn't in my, upon my reading of this. That isn't what this is looking at. Um, it's still important uh, for sure. Um, but I, I think that um, I think where I, I think where we're missing is is where I'd love to see some legislation. Is there's just really very few. Um, places to go if you are working in this country and you feel that you are being discriminated against. Um, it, what, I, what I thought was really great about this recent legislation is there are fines that the pay equity commissioner can hand down. But this is covering, you know, this, the federal government, a very small section of the workforce. Most of the time, most employees are covered by their provinces. Right. Um, and there's really very little recourse. You can, you know, lodge a complaint with your, with your work. And I've interviewed you know, many dozens of women who have filed complaints with their workplaces about about issues they've encountered, and it almost always goes poorly. If you can imagine, you know, you don't want to sue your employer while you're working there. That's all, that's something that you would do. Like you, you probably would just quit. You can go to the human rights tribunal. That's really the only place you can go. Um, there, are, I mean, there are some exceptions, but like primarily, the human rights tribunals are the places that are set up to handle discrimination complaints. These are dramatically underfunded courts. 
Um, it takes two to four years to get a hearing. It, uh, you know, damages are usually between something like five and $20,000. If you win, they don't cover your legal fees. So you can imagine how much of that you're handing over to a lawyer. Like the system here is broken when it comes to accountability, I think, on, on these issues. Um, so I'd love to see the, the provincial government step up with, with actual repercussions, um, ways to, to actually enforce the laws that already exist. And there's one final point I want to make, the, Go ahead, you know, Robin. going back to, to universities mm-hmm. that, that I talked about when we looked at universities, um, again, just why it's important to see the big picture and not just focus on the actual dollar amounts. But what I found was I, I interviewed a lot of people who said, you know, sure, assistant professor, there, there's a, in, in professors, there's kind of like there's full professor, there's associate professor, there's assistant pro- professor. And assistants, you know, on the bottom rung and full professor tenure is the highest. The, the higher up you go, the more tenure, um, the more job security, the more prestige, the higher the pay. Assistant professors, men and men and women, are, are paid very similarly. Associate professors, same thing. Full professors, same thing. The problem is that men are more likely to be promoted to associate professor for a whole host of reasons that I want to get into right now, but that are also heavily gendered. And um, so if you just look at the money, sure, the men and the women are making the same for, in the same job, but you're not looking at the fact that the men are getting promoted to a higher paying job at a rate that is disproportionate. So that's why, again, you've got to zoom out and look at the whole picture here. So thank you so much, Robin. I know that you have to rush off right now. I must say a big thank you to you for spending some of your time with us to discuss this very important um, topic. And um I think this has got legs and we will be touching base on this again. Thank you, Robin. Thanks so much for having me. Well, provinces are opening up. Businesses are beginning to open up. Um, We can go visit places. We can go to the restaurants and things like that. And during the pandemic, I think that we experienced professional sports in a different way. Many of us had to watch it virtually and, you know, the players being in the court all by themselves and just playing, some of them saying not interesting. A recent um, survey here in British Columbia is suggesting that people are actually losing interest or are getting less interested in pro sports. We will be talking about that and seeing maybe the pandemic has anything or had something to do with it. But in the meantime, I've been talking about the British Columbian who is going to Tokyo 2020 to represent Canada. And not just that, right? Alicia Butter- Butterworth, yeah, Alicia Butterworth, yeah, stumbled there, will also, uh, is also working on a GoFundMe in order to build a new track for her hometown. Alicia is joining us right now. Hello, Alicia Butterworth. Thank you. T- and thanks for joining us on Jill Bennett Show this afternoon. Alicia, are you hi. there? Hi, are you yeah. there? Okay, hi, Alicia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Um, so you are representing Canada in uh, Tokyo 2020. Let's talk about that. How excited are you about this? Um, I am very excited. This has been a long time coming and a lot of work has gone in. And so to have everything come together at the right time to be able to qualify for Team Canada has just been um, amazing. And let's talk about training here. You know, I know that from watching, from observing people who are Olympians, people who are going into tournaments, do a ton of training. 
what what does training look like throughout the year for you? Um, so we train all year round. Um, we go through different phases, um, which kind of changes our mileage and um, and whether or not we're doing speed work or longer stuff um, in terms of running. Um, we train seven days a week, um, usually two to three times a day, um, and take about two weeks off a year only. Other than that, it's seven days a week all year round. Okay, so some people might just be wondering, what is she even talking about, right? We're talking about stipple chasing right here. Yes, and track and field and running in general. Um, the training for 3,000 steeplechase is very similar to training for any um, middle to long distance track events. Um, so we do train the same way. So what are you expecting out of your day-to-day experience in Tokyo? Give us just that little glimpse into what your expectation is for um, in terms of day-to-day in Tokyo, I, well, this, this Olympics is obviously going to be very weird because of the pandemic. pandemic um, so we will not have very much freedom. So it's simply going to be um, kind of hanging out in the Team Canada area and um, going out for training sessions. And other than that, we're not really allowed to wander or do anything um it's very locked down just to protect both competitors and the japanese public uh so day-to-day in tokyo is just going to be training and then um yeah just kind of honestly not a lot else uh sitting around and waiting um it's just it's locked down this year Yes, and, you know, the pandemic just seemed to make everything different. I saw um, a report about the preparation going on in Tokyo and how they're having to demarcate places and making sure everywhere is condoned off, even during what is supposed to be your practice time or training time. You know, you have to be in the area that you have been allocated. Yes, yes. Wow. And you, you started, you know, your first Tipple Chase event took place when you were 13 years old? Um, yes, 13, yeah, I did. I started steepling when I was 13. Um, at that age, you start with the 1,500-meter steeple mm-hmm. chase. Um, mm-hmm. It's the earliest age you can start in Canada, so grade 8. And I just uh, instantly fell in love with the event and continued it uh, throughout high school, throughout university, and now post-collegiately. So here we are with you going to Tokyo to represent Canada. Yay, Team Canada, <laughs> right? And, you know, how far has Canada come in this particular sport? Um, we, we've come a long way, I think, especially just in the last couple of years. Um, Canada are um, all of the best chasers in Canada in history are still competing, and we have some up-and-coming um, younger chasers who are coming up strong and fast, and so um, the event has just, uh, my, my teammate actually broke the Canadian record um, just last week in the event, and the former Canadian record holder is still competing and also on the Olympic team, and um, I was, a, yeah couple seconds off of it and then there's several girls behind us who 
um, are kind of knocking on that door as well. Uh, so it's just, it's come a long way, especially in the last year. And I think the next few years, um, we're going to see just a really strong showing of Canadian uh, women steeplechasers. So apart from you being an Olympian and, you know, working very hard to represent Canada to fly the flag at Tokyo, you're also doing something laudable, which is raising awareness for a GoFundMe, right, to secure funding for a new track for your hometown. Now, let's talk about your hometown first, right? Tell me more about this. What inspired you to do this? Yeah, so I am from Parksville, um, a small community on Vancouver Island outside of Nanaimo. And um, we have had kind of the same cinder track since uh, 1971. And it has gone through very few updates. Um, and it is covered in grass patches and hard to run on and not, not a great training facility at all. It's what I ran on in high school. And um, there is a committee in Oceanside um, in the Parksville area that is working very hard to raise funds via different public resources, grants, and um, other sources like that. But there is a component that is coming from community fundraising. We're not able to, they they are not able to raise all the money through just um, public resources and grants. And so we are trying to raise money um, through public individual contributions or private business contributions as well. Um, and so I am just a very small piece of that, trying to get out awareness. There's a very devoted committee that's working very hard in Parksville, and I'm just doing what I can to raise the word for them as well um, and see what we can do, just because I think it would be amazing for the community and for the local youth clubs to be able to have a proper track to train on. Uh, the one that's there is kind of just dangerous at this point. Um, and, and yeah, so that committee is working really hard and I'm just trying to do a small part to help raise the word as well. What's the goal here for the GoFundMe? The GoFundMe goal is to raise um, 250000 uh, an entire track facility um, that the funding they need is $1.25 million. And so they're trying to get a million of that through grants and public um, funds and then raise 250000 through private contributions. Okay, so w- where and how can people who are listening right now be part of this? So the, um, you can find out more on OceansideCommunityTrack.ca. It has a link to um, different sources to donate um, and just tell more about the project in general. Okay, so people can go to Oceanside Community Track and donate and be a part of this laudable project of, create, of getting funding for a hometown track for people to play sports, right? We all need it. It's, yeah. it's a good avenue. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay, so I must say big thank you to you, Alicia Butterworth, for spending time with me this afternoon. And I'm wishing you all the best. Good luck as you go to Tokyo, and I'm hoping we can connect when you return. Awesome. That would be great. Thank you. All right. Good luck with it.